I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. My guest today is The Edge, my good friend and fellow angular guitarist uh, from the <laughs> band <laughs> from the band U2. How's it going, my friend? How are you? It's going great. I have to say, I cannot complain. Kind of well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. So I'd like to start uh, with sort of a tangential thread in our discussion. Mm-hmm. You and I both uh, had the great honor of co-inducting The Clash into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, yes. And so I would just, just like to hear your, I mean, you said very eloquently that night, but let's just talk about like what that band has meant to us as musicians and what that band has meant mm. to the world. Yeah, wow, what a, what a great opening. Yeah, The Clash really changed our band's uh, career and lives because I guess I was 17. They came and played Dublin and they played, it was their first, I think it was their first album tour. So the album was just out or just about to come out. They played in a small venue in Trinity College in the center of the city. And, you know, I was a fan of The Clash. I was was aware of them, but um, no bands came to Ireland, you know. So this was the first show of a band of that era, of, of a sort of up and coming band of that era. So we didn't know what to expect. And oh my goodness, it was it was so exciting and it was so life-changing on so many levels. The level of commitment from the band, the sort of values, the intensity, the music, everything just came together and, and crystallized for us. And up to that point, you know, you two had been young guys, you know, writing songs in a garage, trying to get something going. But after that night, I think we felt that we'd sort of seen something. We'd had an experience which which was a kind of a throwdown and a guiding light, an inspiration. And we were never the same. And it's funny, I keep running into people of my age who remember that night. And, you know, at this point, I, I think I know about half of the audience because it wasn't yeah, very big. That was <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I've identified half the people that were there that night. And it really was an extraordinary thing. And, you know, continued throughout then our career as a young band to listen and be inspired by, by The Clash and um, got to know the human side of them because, of course, they were so iconic. They were you know, huge heroes of ours early on, got to see the frailties and the and the difficulties. And it made me like them more. That's what's interesting. Yeah. It made me yeah. get them more. Even the things they couldn't necessarily forgive themselves for, I totally got all of their issues, all of their challenges and difficulties. And all of the members contributed. They're all just great individual artists and some of the, I think, the most important music of that era from that band. Yeah, there was always, a, both on record and in the room, there was a sense of purpose that mm. distinguished them from, you know, what, you know what, like, I grew up on sort of like the heavy metal music and stuff, and while those bands had a purpose, that purpose was sort of reaping financial reward or getting groupies or this, that, and the other, and it's like the Clash were just on an entirely different 
ideological level, like what it's for. Like, why are mm. we in this room tonight, you know, and why yeah. are we like the passion in the performances and in the commitment in the like the body language? It was just something very, very different. And they were really like sort of a Johnny Appleseed. You know, every town they played in, bands sprang up. And so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the early U2 days, because I there's something we may share in common. It's like there were three bands in my high school. Two of them were filled with accomplished musicians. And then there was my band, the electric sheep that could not, mm -hmm. we didn't have the technical ability to learn cover songs. So we wrote our own and began figuring out how to play the instrument without guitar lessons and without the template of other people's music. So tell me, I don't know. There's something, there may be some kinship in the early days of U2 with regards to that. Oh yeah, totally. And that. When we started our band, none of us could really play. I mean, Larry had had a few drum lessons, had had a kit, and his ambition, or his, his certainly his dad's ambition for him was to for him to be a jazz drummer. But Larry was drawn to more sort of glam rock and loved Mark Bolan and Bowie and and a different music. So when we got together, we did share. There was a kind of a big overlap in our interest in music and our taste in music. And Bowie was common to all of us and some of the other glam rock bands and also the Beatles and the Stones. This is just prior to punk rock. But as we started to try and learn to play songs, we ran into time and time again our, our kind of technical limitations. And we spent way more time tuning up than we ever did playing. <laughs> I remember our very first attempt at a live gig was at the high school where we all were, were attending, we, we managed to persuade whoever was organizing the once a month school disco to allow us to kind of take like half an hour before the disco officially started and, and do a, a little gig. I remember being in whatever room we'd been given to get ready and in a panic, realizing that none of the songs that we were planning to play that night had we ever managed to get to the end of, ever. <laughs> so... <laughs> we felt we were we were never a band that could be accused of being over rehearsed. <laughs> still to this day, yeah. But that was so. I was literally we were. I was in the dressing room. Going, well, how are we going to end the song? Like what? Like I'll just when look at you. When does it stop? When does yeah, it you stop? Just, yeah, when does it stop? Just keep your eyes on me, and then yeah. so we managed to to get by without losing the entire audience. We did, we did I think, lose a, a section of the audience. <laughs> so, so we were so challenged in that respect. And, and therefore, when um, punk rock arrived, two things occurred to us simultaneously. First of all, wow, they sound like, like we could sound like that. that that's their, it's raw music. It's not heavily produced. It's not played by these virtuoso musicians. It's simple, it's direct, it's all about commitment and energy. So that was that was the thing. And then it was like, well, if they sound a bit like us and we could sound like them and they're writing their own songs, why can't we do that? So it was definitely a spur to, to get us to, to start writing our own material. And the, the Ramones, I think, were the band that we really first used as a, a sort of an inspiration in terms of playing because their music was so straight ahead yep. and you know it, it was chord based and it was fast and it suited us down to the ground so our very first tv appearance we somehow don't ask me how but the some producer from the national broadcast company came to our school looking for youth talent for some new show that they were 
pulling together. And um, one of our teachers said, well, you know, there's somebody who plays the flute in fourth year and there's, there's kind of an okay ballet dance from sixth class. And then, oh, and there's a rock and roll band that's just started and they're kind of rehearsing on a Saturday and Wednesday. And it happens to be Wednesday. So they're probably in rehearsal right now. So somebody came over and said, look, um, you probably won't be interested. but <laughs> In your big break. <laughs> yeah. Would you, would you want to be on national television? And we said, of course we would. Okay. Would it be okay if the producer comes over in 10 minutes and listens to one of your songs? So we said, absolutely no problem. And then there was a 10 minute like argument about what the hell we were going to play. Yes, like, yes. And we were still in the midst of the argument when everyone walked in the room. So now we're like, no plan, no idea. So Bono just says, I think what we, the song of ours we should play is Glad to See You Go. He's looking at me and Larry and Adam and we all go, okay, the Ramones song? Great, cool, that's it. So we just played a Ramones song. Yeah. And and the guy says, so that's your, what if your tunes? Yep. <laughs> and, and, and they put us on national television. And of course, in the interim, like four or five weeks, we had time to finish the song that we were about to perform. But we, one of the great thrills was being able to meet Joey Ramone uh, years, years later and just telling him that story. And he oh, rolled around the floor laughing at that one. That's fantastic. I mean, there, there's there's that moment of like the punk rock revelation with you. It was the Ramones. With me, it was the Sex Pistols. I got that right. cassette and just was, you know, played it in my mom's car and sat in the driveway for, I don't know, 40 minutes listening to the same anarchy again and again yeah. and again. And within 24 hours... I was in a band. I didn't know how to play a note on the okay. guitar. I didn't have know how to play a chord. I went into the drama club of my high school and said, a punk band is forming. If you, I'm, I'm right. a guitar player. If you want to okay. be in the band, raise your hand. No wow. experience required. And it was right. just like, because it wasn't just that it was attainable. It was also, to me, it felt like it was just as great as any music I had heard before. And yet it was attainable. You know, yeah. there was not... There wasn't the barrier of the $10,000 Les Paul or the castle on the Scottish lock that you had as a, as a admittance. You just kind of sounded like it was made in a basement. I got a basement. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, so. I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's very sophisticated on one level, but it's so simple and so raw and so real. And of course, the, the Jam were another band that um, yep. we saw on Top of the Pops, which was this TV show that the BBC broadcast every Thursday evening and we, we could pick it up in Dublin on the East Coast. We, we had the kind of, the signal made it our, as far as we were. So we got to see the, the jam and we got to see the pistols mm -hmm. doing pretty vacant and yep. stranglers. And so quite quickly, it really started to feel like, you know, there was something for us to be part of this, yeah. this new movement in music. And it was all about, as you say, it's like, Obviously, the values and the underlying ideas are important, the political statement of it all, but it's also the visceral energy of these guys just giving it everything and the tempo and the aggression of it all. It was just for a 16-year-old kid, it was, it was just so compelling and so, yeah. so inspiring. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. I'm Tom Morello. And this is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. My guest today is The Edge. So I know I've told you this story before, but we'll share it on this show. It's like when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was working for a company that was 
they were turning their stuff was going from paper to computers. So my job eight hours a day, I was an alphabetizer. And I had one cassette, and my cassette was Joshua Tree Unforgettable Fire that someone had bootlegged for me. I apologize. Oh, the, the, the pounds in the in the mail. But it was really, you know, and I and I've heard these stories about, you know, bands that I've been in, but it was it was a lifeline. Like I was in a I would take my 15-minute breaks and just hold on to the sink and think, I am a human. Like I am a human. Like I, I right, am a human. Right. And it was it was a life raft in a way, you know. And you know, and so, and I'm sure you, you've heard that a lot through the years, and you've heard it from from me before too. But there's got to be something that you, when you start from those punk rock, like you see something on a stage, and you're like, there may be something in me that can be something like that. To mm. saving lives halfway around the globe, you know, keeping people from going postal, that's got to have some resonance. And sort of looking back on that, what are your thoughts on that? You know, sort of the decades long spiritual positive impact that your band has had on people. Well, I think it starts when you're a music fan and music changes your life. You start to understand that music is way more powerful than just a form of entertainment, that it has that potential to communicate so much. And it's so, so kind of instinctive and, and direct and visceral. So you, that's what, what's so inspiring as a musician and a, and a writer and as a fan also is that when you, being impacted so powerfully by music, you understand that it has that potential. And then you just don't want to do anything that's not that potent. You want it to always have that impact, not just on your on you. And that's the that's the sort of maybe the little secret that people don't understand about the music we we make is that, you know, it does affect people, but it affects us also. It affects us in the same way. And that's how we know if it's good. Because if it's not doing that to us, we know it's not going to do that to anyone else. Right. And the rawness and the, the honesty and the ambition of it has to be there. The innovation has to be there so that nothing sounds like it's dialed, it's phoned in. Nothing sounds like, you know, you've heard it before. And, and the sentiments and the values are real, that they something you deeply believe. And yeah. if, if all those things are true, and they were true, I think, for The Clash, they were true for Rage Against the Machine, your audio slave, they're true for Bob Marley as well. You know, these, yeah, yeah, these artists, yeah. they have that power because it's, they're not messing. They're not, yeah. it's not about anything else. It's only about, can you put all of that sentiment, all of that emotion, all of those ideas into a piece of music and play it for all you're worth? That's the high prize. And then when you have, when you've built up that, like, that capital with an audience from that sort of sense of commitment. Cause there's, there's bands that people like, there's bands that people love. Then there are bands that people believe in. And that's mm. a, that's a different category. And I want to talk about a specific song, like the uh, little Stevens um, sun city record and particularly the song silver and gold. Like that's a, right. that's a, that's a song and a moment where kind of the rubber hits the road where it's beyond inspiring people who are down at work and trying to make a concrete change in a, geopolitical matter so mm. talk for talk for a minute about like sort of the whether it's the sun city record or the song silver and gold i love the version on the on the live record of silver and gold which really feels like it, it, it's a confrontational moment mm. you know in you know in a live setting trying to literally have your hands on the wheel of history being a rock band mm. that is going beyond entertainment beyond even inspiring and trying to sort of change a physical fact on the ground mm. in south africa Tell me a little yeah, bit about that. You know, 
And you can go back to the clash again, uh, as in some ways the the beginning of that political uh, awakening for us, and Bob Marley probably, and John Lennon, because those artists did understand that um, that music and music culture and and youth culture and counterculture have this this important part to play in stimulating and, and provoking change. So we were part being Irish. I think it 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 also gives you a a, a different angle on the sort of post-colonial period, which South Africa at that point was um, still under apartheid and had still yet to um, acknowledge the fact that it it had to view all its people in the same way, no matter what their skin color or their ethnic background. At that point, you know, they were still trying to separate the races and maintain the sort of white supremacist, white elitist regime. So coming from Ireland, where we were Europeans, but we were not um, a colonial power. In fact, we had been colonized. We had been invaded. We had been oppressed, um, like so many of the colonies had been. Uh, So we felt very keenly this connection with with the anti-apartheid movement. And weirdly enough, some of the the architects of the South African constitution post the fall of the apartheid movement had actually been in exile in Dublin. One of them was a lecturer uh, who actually lectured our manager, believe it or not. Kader Asmal um, became an important uh, member of the ANC government post post the change of, of regime. And Kader was was a professor, very well educated, learned man, and he he co-wrote the constitution. So there was this personal and deep connection with apartheid and the struggle against apartheid and having that Irish history. So we, you know, when little Stephen called us up, we immediately understood we just that year or a year before started to get involved with Amnesty International. And it it just felt like the absolute natural progression for us. And, you know, it never occurred to us this is anything unusual that we never, never thought, well, why are we getting involved with politics? It just felt like the natural extension of our music and, and what we were about as a band. And of course, then, you know, the the movement started to really gain momentum and we're not the only band by any means who contributed um peter gabriel um did Biko, and there was there was just a general yeah. um surge of support and um i think it's it did change change things it really did it certainly moved the meter as far as like because one of the principal components of helping to bring down apartheid was the economic boycott and so when you're reaching young people who are consumers who are advertised to and all of a sudden they have an opinion about corporations doing business in south africa i it, it certainly it certainly was impactful and certainly one of the th- help put wind in the sails of the global struggle to help bring down apartheid so and that anyway then that's one of my favorite recorded works of yours on that um i want to shift to talk uh, guitar for a second um, right in your in what is your view of the role of the guitar in U2? For me, in Rage Against the Machine, I was the DJ. And I self-identified right. as the DJ in the band. And sometimes the DJ 
is playing riffs and sometimes the DJ is doing sort of soundscapes to in an analog, you know, with bare hands and a Marshall stack in an analog way to approximate the sounds that we hear on hip hop albums or elect- electronic records and things like that. What What is your view of the role of the guitar in U2 and how has it morphed through the decades? Well, I think it was always um, a, a, an opportunity to do something signature and, and apart from the the way guitar had been used up to that point um again coming up through the sort of early punk days there were you know the guitar was a sort of used as a as a kind of blunt instrument it was mostly chords and it was it was very aggressive it was propulsion and it was sonics and it was you know a visceral thing as as our music started to evolve a bit more i was listening to guitar players like Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd from television and uh, Lenny Kay from Patti Smith's band. And um, I was starting to understand that there were other tones, other ways to use the instrument that did not rely on the blues and sort of heavy rock and, and stuff that I considered, you know, I'd loved. Rory Gallagher is one of the great blues, white blues guys um, ever. And Thin Lizzy did great work in that area. But I... At that moment, we wanted to do something completely different because it it just seemed like part of the statement of that movement was was to set yourself apart and be, be different. So then it was a real challenge. Okay, how do you take this instrument and and make it sound totally different? And so the when we found the echo as a as a kind of process processing a sonic processing, it really opened up a whole new thing for me because a couple of things. First of all, it gave me this rhythmic um, opportunity that I hadn't had before to do quite complicated rhythmic stuff. But also on a kind of a textural level, it was a kind of machine age thing. It connected me in a way to a more modern musical aesthetic. And that was an important thing for for the band because then that connected us to what was going on in other parts of Europe um, more than necessarily what was going on in America. And um, the bands that were kind of happening at that time were Susie and the Banshees and Magazine. We were all Kraftwerk fans. We were delving a little earlier in the German scene into bands like Neu, um, and Connie Plank's work with Eno. And I subsequently found out, you know, years later, why I was so attracted to that music. And it wasn't, it was, it was in my search for something totally fresh and different. My ear told me that's, that's different. That's not a blues based music. That's modern music with a different angle. So then I find out eventually that it's because of this fellow Stockhausen who's working in Germany, who has taken um, the the sort of modern avant-garde uh, classical music, and he started teaching this young group of musicians in Germany who were, and he started teaching them about electronic music. So next thing, Can and all these groups are coming through, but they're not listening to the blues at all. They're listening mm-hmm. to a completely different thread of of an history of music so we in our i have to be honest sort of innocence and instinctive way just went that's different so i was 
hell-bent on not sounding like anything classic rock. I just wanted to sound like I'd come from another planet, from some other source. And that was really where we ended up getting a lot of inspiration from. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the one of the guiding North Stars of U2's sound from that day to this, you know, is that is that yeah. guitar journey, which has circumvented tradition. You know? and uh, we also never really did. I mean, I do solos, but it was never about a kind of, you know, right. here's, here's what I can do with my yes, instrument. Foot on the, the solos are always things, yeah. about an emotional kind of connection. Yeah. So I was, you would say that, you know, I play, I play rhythm guitar and Adam Clayton plays lead bass. Lead bass. <laughs> I want to thank you very much, my friend, for, for being on the show. Thank you very much for your intellect, insight, and the art through the years and in the future. Till next time, this has been Maximum Firepower. Take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the Sirius XM app. Search Maximum Firepower.